This is The Other 51. I'm Brian, and this week, my guest is Amy Bass, and we talk about her book, One Goal. My guest this week is the author of the incredible, incredible book, One Goal, uh, and a professor at Manhattanville College. Amy Bass, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we were just talking uh, before uh, we started here about the semester for both of us and the kind of craziness of trying to teach and uh, teach college during COVID-19. And um, so I'm wondering, you know, you were saying that you teach in person outside, which is cool. And you also teach uh, one online asynchronous course. What courses do you teach? Just out of curiosity. So this semester, my asynchronous course uh, is probably my most popular course. It's ethics in sport. Um, so it's an ethics course. I've taught it in person. I've taught it. It's it's just I I actually created it as an asynchronous package, um, just because I wasn't able to get as many students in it as wanted to take it. So even before the pandemic, um, I was heading in this direction with it. So it's a it's a course about you know the morale the, the moral questions that we can we can ask and think about within a sport context. Um, um, and the course that I'm teaching outside is brand new. It's called Equal Play, Gender and Sport. Um, so it is a it is a cross-listed course between sports studies and women and gender studies. Um, and it's it's Title IX and everything that goes with it. I, I want to take both of those courses. They sound so good. The uh, the, the sports ethics course, um, I'm, of course, very curious. In, and I've written about and thought a lot about the whole, you know, stick to sports mentality that you see in a lot of sports media. And I'm wondering, um, have you have you noticed that? And kind of how do you kind of address that issue? Does that come up in, in your course at all? Or how do you kind of uh, address that or deal with that question? Stick to sports came out of a very conservative space um, that narrowly defines that narrowly defines sport as recreation and ignores everything else that's important about sports. Um, so all of my classes and really the premise for the sports studies major is that there's really nothing that you can't use sports as a window uh, into, whether you're talking about immigration or international politics or mega events or, you know, public space, community, gender, um, certainly racial politics, national politics, um, you know, there's just on and on and on. And so I really think that, you know, if we stick to sports, I am sticking to sports and everything that, and everything that comes with it. Um, you know, I'm fine with saying that. Yeah, I'm sticking to sports, but you know, by training, I'm a I'm a historian. My first book was about the Olympic Games, but it's a civil rights history. Um, it's about you know it's Mexico '68 and Black Power, um, and I'm I'm sticking to sports when I'm writing about the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Um, I'm sticking to sports and everything that goes with it. So. You know, it's it it came out of a very conservative place. It has it has had an impact. I mean, when we look at you know some of the bloodletting that's happened within sports journalism in the last year or so, uh, but if if nothing else that we have seen in terms of the relationship between sports and COVID nineteen, it's it's just how much sports matter. Um, and obviously, that this is, leads into the discussion of the book that we're going to be talking about that I just finished last night, One Goal. It was a phenomenal book. I enjoyed it so, so much. And one of those books, I would not have thought a high school soccer team in Lewiston, Maine would be something that I would read about, especially during the most tumultuous election in the U.S. In, in my lifetime. But here we are. And it was such a wonderful little respite for it. So I want to kind of dig deep into that book a little bit. First of all, where did you... 
where did you find out? Like, how, where was the genesis of this book? How did you kind of get turned on to this town and this team and the school and the story itself? Sure. Um, so in Lewiston, Maine is Bates College, which is my alma mater. Um, I did my undergraduate work there. So, you know, once you're a once you're a Bates student, Lewiston is sort of always on your radar. And the team first came to my attention on Facebook, of all places, uh, because of a classmate of mine who stayed in Maine after graduation. Um, so she just posted about this wonderful team, um, an article in the Lewiston Sun Journal, and at that moment, when this team sort of was making these headlines, um, it was a really interesting sort of triangular moment in terms of global history. The terrorist attacks in Paris, this is fall of 2015, uh, had just taken place. If we can, it seems like a million years ago uh, to think back to 2015. But um, the first of those, you know, it was an awful night in Paris, just, just you know, massacres in the streets. And that the first bomb that went off that night was actually at Stade de France, where a friendly was going on between Germany and France. So, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And yes, a soccer stadium would actually fulfill sort of the bucket list requirements for a terrorist attack. Um, but because of sort of a weird series of events, the bomb went off in the tunnel. It didn't go off in the stadium. Um, and so it, it started at a soccer stadium and, and spread throughout the city. But then that bomber in that stadium, uh, sort of a myth began to emerge that the way he had gotten into France was by manipulating a Syrian refugee network. And this was not true. But it didn't matter that it wasn't true, right? 2015, we are, we are sort of at the dawn of what was going to become fake news and, and how it worked. So it really took hold that refugee networks were funneling terrorists into other parts of the world. And as a reaction, a bunch of U.S. governors, including then governor of Maine, Paula Page, who's an interesting character unto himself, um, to say the very, very least, he uh, he was one of the ones that pronounced that refugees would not be allowed to settle in his state. And that was when my ears really pricked up because I'm a historian by training. Um, I know the U.S. Constitution super well. And I thought, I'm pretty sure governors don't get to decide who does and doesn't live in their states. I don't think this is how it works. So I began to plunge in a little bit and, you know, Refugee resettlement was something I knew about, but I didn't like know about it. And refugee resettlement is, is I think, one of the most fascinating, complicated, transnational things that the world does. Um, it is amazing to me to think about the networks of, of just tens of thousands of people, um, at least formerly in the United States. The United States, through the Obama administration, took about 100,000 refugees a year. Um, that's gone down by about 90% under the, the current administration, um, particularly in terms of Muslim majority uh, resettlements. Um, but studying that was was just this whole sort of explosion of of global understanding and and so i had these three points right you had this this bomb that goes off in a soccer stadium that starts off an evening of terror in paris you have the us governor's inane reaction to it based on a falsehood and then you have this the beautiful game being played by this this somali dominant team in of all places maine and and so those three things started to sort of just gyrate in my head. And I wrote about 900 words about it for CNN. And, and while I kept sort of outlining the book in my head, 
it was the reaction to that CNN article that solidified it for me because I read the comment section. Uh, and then the comment section always, always a mistake, but well, except this was, this was really informative. It was awful. It was awful. But then the comment section came to me. So I would go into the office in the morning and I would have death threat email emails and voicemails. And so the, the level of xenophobia and the level of Islamophobia that I encountered in the days after this piece, it, it, we had very obviously struck a nerve and it was a nerve I wanted to explore. Um, I, I had never sort of been at the center of such vitriol. Um, so when an editor reached out and said, you know, is there a book here? I was like, you know, yeah, there's a book here. Um, so that was it. So how did you, um, I'm, I'm curious, how did you kind of mentally and kind of for your own health deal with the threats that you're getting and those kind of messages that you're getting on that. Like you said, you're a historian, you're a professor. That's not in our normal day-to-day existence. So how did you kind of handle that and deal with that and kind of get through that? Well, it's not in, in my normal everyday existence, but it is certainly in the normal everyday existence of the people that I was writing about. So I think, first of all, there's there's sort of that extreme um, that extreme sense of empathy that I think can be really critical in terms of, of launching a project. Um, the other piece is is man these these guys are such cowards I have to say and and it's not my it's not my first you know run with this um, you know I'm I'm pretty prolific in in places like CNN or Salon or what have you and and they find you especially I have to say as a woman who writes about sports so usually I just get sort of you know the what does that dumb blonde know about football um, to which the answer is a lot um, but. But this was different, and yet they were still cowards, right? Like, it was always voicemails that were like 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m., you know, when I wouldn't be there to answer the phone. Um, it, was, it was always anonymous emails or made-up accounts or what have you. Um, the, you know, there was one guy who actually called during normal hours and was, and was former military, was a vet, and he was like, I'm not calling to harass you. I live in Arizona, and I would really like to talk to you about immigration. And I was like, okay, let's do He identified himself. Like that you can deal with. That's dialogue. This other stuff is just cowardly hate. Um, so I think that, yeah, you know, it, it feels, I will say that the college gave me a really nice parking spot during that with like well-lit, near security. Um, but it, it goes away. Um, and it, it, you know, again, it's, this isn't about my life. This is about the people that I'm writing about. So, so can, can you imagine? Um, this is just one small taste. Right. I was going to say, you know, for for someone like you or a, a lot of people who kind of write about it, it happens and it's intense and it's awful. But you're right. It goes away. It stops. And then thinking about the people for whom it doesn't go away for. Right. Right. I Exactly. Okay, so the kind of working back through the process. So the editor uh, editor contacts you about this as a book. You say there's a book there. So what are your next steps? Like, how do you start reporting this? How do you start kind of piecing together going from 900 word article and idea to full book? Um, so I contacted coach, uh, and said, you know, what do you think? Because if he didn't, 
if he didn't buy in, if Mike McGraw didn't say yes, and God love Mike McGraw, he thought about it for a couple of days. And, and he should have, because what I was asking of him was huge. Um, and I also circled back to Abdi Kadir Negi, who was, who was the very first person that I talked to for the article. And, and Abdi Kadir is a, is a community leader. Um, he's someone who, you know, born in Somalia, spent 14 years until he was 19 in Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. Uh, came, was resettled in the Atlanta area, but made his way to to Maine, as so many of them did, um, to just sort of get a sense of, you know, this is what this project would be. But then I went into full historian mode. I spent a couple months just reading everything, getting my hands on anything that I could. So it was a very traditional. But then when I got up there, it was it was sort of like okay i was such i was such a nerd i was like here's here's the list of people i want to interview and here's the list of things i want to say and and it it some of that happened but like 90% of it went out the window because first of all i was writing largely about teenagers and teenagers don't care about your research agenda teenagers were like yeah it's great that you keep emailing me but i don't read my email um so it was um you know, having coach on board was huge. And, and I love Mike McGraw with every inch of my soul. He, he, he is a treasure of a human being. And I'm so grateful to have him in my life and in my family's life. Um, he was so generous and getting him on board helped a lot because there is that relationship between coach and player um, that is a, that is an obedient. I mean, I knew I had to earn their trust on my own as well, but he was a huge step to, to me being able to do that. And also he's so beloved in this community that, you know, lots of people said to me like, well, why did the people who are sort of on the other side of this want to talk to you? And the answer is Mike McGraw, that if, if Mike was on board, the community was on board. Um, so he helped enormously. Um, and there were lots of those kinds of helping people along the way. But I have to say the kids and their families, um, you know, we worked hard. We worked hard to understand each other. I worked really hard to help them gain confidence in their stories and understand that their stories were important. It, it always amazed me, you know, I would be, you know, maybe hanging out, having Chinese food or hanging on the sidelines or, or at a summer practice. And they'd be like, Oh yeah, you know, this happened, but you're not interested in that. And I'd be like, okay, yes I am. Um, and I, and I get it. Like, you know, if somebody, it's sort of like, you know, when you ask somebody like, Oh, how was your day? And they're like, fine. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, how do you get beyond that? And, and the word was nice. Everything that I asked, in the early days of this research, it was like, so what'd you think about it? It was nice. Their, nice, nice was their go-to word. And then when I could sort of dig in and, and get more, um, it, it went further. I think, you know, there's a couple kids who in particular were really my gateways. I think about Abdi Sharif Hassan and Malid Abdo and, and Muhammad Khalid. And, and Mo Khalid will be the first to tell you that he, he waited. He held me at arm's length for a long time. Um, and I think really our bonding moment was was when he was doing his postgraduate year at Kent Academy, uh, which isn't that far from me in Connecticut. So I was going up there every weekend. He and Abdi were doing a PG year there and he got hurt on the field and the, the trainer wouldn't let him go unless there was someone that she was sort of releasing, releasing him into their care. And he was like, I'm with her. And I was like, okay, so I'm a guardian at this point. And, and that, but you know, that was the kind of moment that it was like, you know, I, one of the reasons I kept going up there on the weekends was because all the other 
guys on the team at this prep school had, you know, parents coming in from the city to watch their games on the weekend. And, and these guys didn't, they were really far from home. And, and so I was going up and we'd get a bite after the game. And, and so you build relationships in different ways. I mean, Malid, Malid and I, the first time we talked just cause he's a talker. I, I it was like a three and a half hour conversation. We closed the high school that day, like the lights went off around us. So then the next time I saw him, he was familiar with me and talked to me and, and that would bring like three more kids on board. Um, so it was slow, but basically hanging out became a mode of operation for me. Like that's what I was doing. I was hanging out. And, and how long were you up there reporting? Um, I was back and forth between New York and Maine from the fall of 2015, right until, you know, pandemic. I've, I've never stopped. Um, but the, the real hardcore first draft, and this sounds crazy from an academic, um, this was a whole new ball game was a, was about a year. Um, I had a, I had a manuscript inside of a year. Um, but we, I kept writing. And in fact, we, we literally had to stop the press's moment because in the fall of 2017, as production was closing on the book, they won a second state championship. Um, and there was, you know, that epilogue in the book um, came out of that, that, you know, there were only two members of the team from 2015 who were still there, but Nuri had come back and, and that winning goal was scored by one of the little brothers of the 2015 squad. So it was, it was sort of like a find me white space at the end of this book to write 800 more words. Um, So it was, it was right up till the, it was right up till the end. And so, I, I, you know, in in reporting this and hanging out, becoming your kind of uh, your go to rep, uh, reporting style. Um, how? What are the like logistically? I'm curious, kind of what that looks like. I mean, are you you're recording, but when you're just hanging, you know, as opposed to an interview, when you're hanging out, you're watching practice, you're talking to players, you're kind of observing. Like, are you taking notes? Are you using your phone? Like, what are you? How are you? taking as you hang out how are you taking it all in in a way that you can then turn into stuff later yeah so i there's there were a couple different the formal interviews were just recorded um and then transcribed so that was easy um and then i was really lucky because other folks shared stuff with me like hbo did a a small thing on this team and and shared their and shared their their transcripts with me from their interviews so there were you know they're all different kinds of sources the sports writers at the lewis and sun journal i literally cannot sing the praises of more highly i consider all of them friends now i respect the heck out of them they shared photos they have an incredible Incredible staff of photojournalists for uh, on this local paper, um, but in any case, um, so that's one piece. Yes, taking notes. I have stacks and stacks and stacks of legal pads. They are a disastrous mess. Um, there are post-its. I would write on my hand, which I tend to do anyway. It's a terrible habit, kids. Don't do that, but I do. Um, you know, cocktail napkins. One of the great, some of the great conversations that I had with Coach and with um, Dan Gish, the assistant coach, was over pitchers of beer after a game at the Blue Goose, which was, you know, my college, my college bar. And then now I sort of was a local, which I'm not. I mean, I am not a local. I know that I'm not a local in Maine. Um, but it, so, so all of that. And then the other thing that really became one of my go-tos was my camera. Um, I'm only a recreational photographer and I ended up taking about 2000 photographs while doing the research. And I, I started to storyboard 
a lot. I had sort of vision boards, which I had never done before. I was always really sort of patronizing and dismissive of such things. I took a landscape painting class while I was writing this book um, because the visual was really important in this book. Like it, it really struck me um, as I was trying to sort of learn the art of reporting. I also, I got books on reporting. Like, I'm not kidding. I broke it all down and rebuilt how I write a book. Um, it was my fourth book and I was there reading books on writing, um, which seems crazy. And my husband kept saying like, don't you know how to do this? And I was like, no, nah, maybe. Um, so I was I was reading you know books like Storycraft and and thinking about you know s- using sense exercises you know what does a game smell like what does a game sound like how can I show what's going on at a game by talking about you know what it's like to walk into a soccer game and they're selling chai and sambusa at the at the concession stand you know what does that tell us without me writing and lots of Somalis contributed to the snack shack um, you know just you know how how we, we can sort of that, I mean, that's good reporting, right? And, and it's, it's learned and, and thinking about that kind of storytelling was all part of it. So, and, you know, some of the photographs ended up in the book that I, sh- I shot the cover of the book, which with an iPhone, which I'm shocked at that that's what we chose. There were so many photos by Russell Dillingham that I wanted to use from the Lewis and Sun Journal, but this is the one we went with. Um, but so it, it was an all sensory experience um, and it's a mess. Like if you look at my boxes of stuff from writing this book, it's, it's a mess. No one would ever be able to make sense of it. So that, that leads to the, to the next question is how do you, how did you take that mess and turn it into that book? Yeah. I think one of the things that I was most grateful for was when I really sort of said, okay, I've got to sit down and write. And this was the same moment when I said to my daughter, you're going to summer camp. <laughs> um, so it, it like, I really knew that I just needed to be able to, you know, 14 hour a day it for an extended period of time by myself. Um, I opened up my files and I found that back in the early days of my research, like secondary research, I had sketched out a shell of the last two thirds of the book, like really the game part of the book, the game. And I had no memory of doing it, which is really disturbing. Um, And I couldn't have been more grateful for something. So I actually had an outline. I was like, oh my God, I have an outline. Um, I had mapped out and I, and I didn't know that I had done this. I had mapped out the crux of the book according to basically the season, which makes chronological sense. But then I needed to figure out you know, am I going to write about all the characters and their biographies up front? Am I doing this in real time? Are we going to flash back and forward? And and really figuring out where the start of the book was happened early on because Abdi, Sharif, Hassan, and I um, had sat down early, early, early. Abdi was one of the first guys that I, I really spent hours and hours and hours with. Um, and the first maybe hour of our conversation was about the 2014 loss to Chevrus. So that's why the book starts with that bus ride home. Um, and then I had talked to, I, there were so many conversations that just fixated on that, um, fixated on, on how the, the 2015 season started on the last day of the 2014 season. 
Um, and they all talked about it the exact same way. And it was heartbreaking. So I, I knew that I was framing the beginning of the book that way. So really what became complicated was where do you weave in sort of biographical background? Where do you weave in, you know, the history of Somalia? Where do you weave in, you know, past games? Um, and that first section could have gotten, I, I still think it, it reads sort of complicated. You're going back to sort of the tragic losses of this team's past and, and also trying to move the, the story forward. Um, but I think that soccer, just like soccer sort of is the guideline for how this community came together in this season, I think soccer is was really a guideline for me because soccer is, you know, it's a game of continuity. It's not a game of fracture. So so kind of using using the rules of the game, it, it really it began to sort of take form itself um, almost on its own because of what I was writing about. So you mentioned that how you had to kind of learn how to do reporting and we're reading books about that throughout the process. I'm curious, what is the difference between the historical writing that you've done throughout your career in your first couple of books were and this type of writing? Um, well, I think the biggest difference is that people read this type of writing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's something that we have to face. And and you know, I look, I I acknowledge, you know, once I sort of was at a point of my academic career when I had you know tenure and then full rank, you you can take that out for a spin, right? You can you can sort of do different things. But I had always sort of been doing different things. You know, my work with NBC. Um, my my increasing presence in terms of writing in popular media. So I think I think I learned a lot from my editors. You know, my editor Jane at at CNN is is we work we don't even need to really like talk. We can just we have such a good back and forth in terms of of her teaching me what grabs and and what needs to be there and deleting my constant need to add paragraphs and paragraphs of historical context to anything that I write. You know, that said, she appreciates that, right? And she knows which pieces of that to keep. Um, so I think that that all of that goes into it. But I think really, I, I, wish, I wish academics wrote more like this. I wish we weren't so dismissive of, of popular... Um, of popular work, uh, you know, that said, I wish more popular work took the methodology of, of academics more seriously, because I think that the way, you know, historians, I think the best analogy I've ever seen is that historians are kind of like terriers, right? We just dig and dig and dig and dig and dig because we're positive. We're going to find something awesome. Um, and I think that, you know, that relationship between journalists and and historians, maybe especially, is is a tenuous one because we're sort of like, you know, why are you guys on the bestseller list and we're not? And they're sort of like, you know, why why do you guys write with all these footnotes and all this jargon? Um, and I think, you know, I, I have a, I really kind of like the crew of, of folks that I've assembled over the years as sort of a circle. Um, many of whom are journalists and, and sort of, you know, writing is a, is, is a very solitary thing and yet it's an incredibly generous community. Um, um, I host a series for the, the New Rochelle Public Library called Cocktails in Conversation and, and just you know, the different kinds of writers that I've been able to bring through who are so generous with time and, and advice. And it's, it's a lovely thing to be. Um, so I, I think that all of that goes into sort of your education when you want to make a change. But I think the biggest thing that had to happen for me was to sort of say, no, I don't know how to do this. Um, 
And, and I'm going to think, you know, I, I think one of the best things that you can do is read stuff just voraciously that you like, but also read stuff that you don't like. Um, because you also want to learn about what kind of writer you don't want to be. Um, so, you know, read, 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 read. Um, and that's, you know, whenever I, I do a lot of work with schools now, because one goal very unexpectedly has become a I mean, I was surprised. I certainly wasn't writing it with this in mind has become a, a common read for a lot of schools. Um, but, you know, just just talking about that, that you should be, you know, don't put a book down because it's awful. Um, I've heard a lot of people say like, oh, there's not enough time in the world to read books you don't like. But as a writer, you should read books you don't like because you need to know what you don't like about them. Um, so I think I think all of that goes into it. And, and I, and I have no doubt. And my, my agent kept saying to me, you know, you've got to be really careful here that you don't come off as, you know, some PhD writing about a soccer team. You know, they're, they're a little wary about that. And, you know, it's always that they over on the publisher side. And I remember when I finally gave some pages and it was only for marketing purposes. Like I was not ready to hand anything over yet, but my editor needed some stuff for, you know, basically publishing's version of the upfronts when they were, you know, meeting with the industry. And there's a line in the introduction um, that he circled and he said, I am now confident that you can do this. Um, and it's when that it's in the introduction when I write that, that soccer is how these kids live where they landed. Um, and it was that sentence that he circled. And of course, as a historian, I then, I then had like three more paragraphs after that before the chapter ended. And he was like, and we are crossing all the rest of this out. It ends with this sentence. And I was like, all right, lesson learned that, that you know, when you have a sentence like that, that is intended to punch someone in the stomach, let the reader recover and don't drown them in more. So it's, it's those little tiny lessons um, that just build and build and build. Can you think of an example of that I a book that you hated or didn't like and what you learned from it? Oh God, that would be terrible. As I was saying that, yes, I, I realized that's yeah, a terrible. I can't that, that, I can't that, do that. I just I just said the writer community was lovely. No, I'm not doing that. No, that's that, that, that for <laughs> as I as I asked that, I'm like, that is a terrible thing to ask them. That's a horrible thing. I apologize for that. No, yeah, and I, I don't you know what I will say this. There's I think that what's even more instructive is books that I love that like someone else didn't. Um okay. so for example, I am I am in a book club. I I have a, a circle. Um, and it's uh, a book that I, I devoured. One of my favorite books um, in recent memory is Gish Jen's uh, book, The Resistors, which is... Okay. You told me about this on email. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of about baseball. And I went into book club. I was hosting. I was so excited. And one of the people in book club that I respect the most in terms of her opinion about writing, and she's also an academic, hated the book. And the person that I expected was not going to like the book because it was just too esoteric or too baseball or whatever, loved the book, just like me. She and I, who have never agreed on anything, we agreed on this. And so I just, I found it fascinating. Um, I think, I literally think that, that Gish Jen has written like a book of a book of a, a generation in the resistors. I just, I marvel over it. And just to see the different, the different reactions to Gish's work, um, I, I just, I find that fascinating. So I, I think that, you know, I'll say that. 
that's a book that I loved that not everybody loved. So, so I always ask my guests, um, what's the best thing they've read lately? If you want to talk more about the resistors at this point, feel free. Or if there's something else that, uh, that you've read lately, that kind of really struck a chord, love to hear about it. Um, I think the resistors is, is a book that I've been incredibly passionate about since I read it. Um, Gish and I did the Key West literary seminar together. Um, my gosh, in January of this year, it feels like a million years ago. Um, that, so many of us assembled together. Um, it was Key West actually did one of their famous seminars on sports writing. Um, so it was a collection of amazing people. Um, Jane Levy and Rowan Ricardo Phillips. And I was there. Gish Jen was there. It was, it was really Buzz Bissinger. I got to hang out with Buzz for a week. Um, so, you know, Gish's book, 100% is one of the things. I have to say, I really like Jeff's book, The Mighty Oak. Um, Jeff Perlman's newest book on the Lakers and Kobe, I think is magnificent. Um, and it's, you know, I think I, I'm not just saying that cause he talks about me on the first page. Um, but it's, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I just, I just taught two books that I love teaching. I just taught, um, Wyoming Antias's sort of memoir, Tiger Bell, um, which I think is a super teachable book. And, um, I just had students read Curveball, which is the biography of Tony Stone, who's the, you know, the most prominent woman to have played in the Negro Leagues. Um, so I, I, it's rare for me to teach two sort of biographical, autobiographical works in the same semester. Um, but I absolutely, I absolutely loved teaching those. Um, but yeah, I think the book that's still dominating my head, I've obviously been reading a couple other books since then, but um, I really recommend giving, giving Gish Jen's The Resistors a, a try. Um, it's dystopian, which is not usually my cup of tea, uh, but I'm just kind of in awe of someone that can create a whole different version of America, and it's still about baseball. So that sounds that sounds awesome. You you recommended that to me on email, and it's on my list to get uh, as, as as I read through a bunch of books right now. But that is, I'm moving that up to the top of the list. I think I'm very excited. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, um, Amy, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, and uh, best of luck on whatever your next project ends up being. Thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you, Brian. Thanks for listening to The Other 51. Show notes for this and all of our episodes can be found at sportsmediaguide.com by clicking on The Other 51 tab. If you like the show, please consider giving it a rating and a review, either at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. <laughs>